This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. It seems like we are on a perpetual quest to figure out the right answer to homelessness. And so from time to time, we want to see what other countries are doing, especially those who seem to be getting it right. So we're going to take you to Finland. And Juha Kahila, who works with the Y Foundation. And, and Juha, tell me what the Y Foundation does. Ah, hello. Good to be here. And uh, yeah, I work at the Y Foundation and we are the Finnish, Finland's fourth largest landlord, NCO, non-profit organization providing affordable homes for, for low-income people and then again homeless people. Okay, so you actually build and then rent these apartments designed for homeless people? Yes, we built built the apartments and then we rent them out and then we also buy individual apartments from the private market and rent those apartments to uh, people in need. Okay, and I'm told that Finland is actually the only EU country where homelessness is on the decline. Is that true? That is true, yes. So you've been to the United States. You've seen firsthand our homeless problem. What are we doing wrong? Yeah, yeah, I was in Seattle last April in in a housing first conference, and yeah, you know, Seattle the situation was was really really hor- horrible in for my eyes, especially because in, in, if you come to Helsinki, you won't see tents or people sleeping on the streets. So that really really shocked me shocked me when I was there. And uh, yeah, I always like to say that you lack courage. Courage to change the system fully, fully, fully estimate the full potential of housing first, and forget the temporary accommodation solutions and and those kind of short term solutions. Because they tend to cost a lot of money and then they tend to stay quite permanent and you will not end homelessness with those those things. So what are you doing differently in Finland? It says here you have 18,000 apartments and operate in 57 cities and municipalities. What is it about your housing first model that seems to be working? Because as you said, only EU country where homelessness is on the decline. Yeah, well, what we did 2008... We changed the system completely. We got rid of most of the shelters and we renovated the shelters into housing first units where people have apartment of their for of their own. And, and then we tried to get rid of almost all the temporary solutions and we built more affordable housing where people could have, you know, home of their own for for unlimited time. So I think that was the biggest thing. And of course it helps that we have government on our side and then it's on the current pro- program that in Finland the goal is to end homelessness by twenty twenty seven. So that surely helps. What about the uh, mental health struggles or the, the drug issues that can come along with homelessness too? Yeah, well, with the housing first, I think the beauty is that it's not housing only. There is the wraparound support uh, that's in, in, in the housing as well. So people, if they have they are addicted to drugs or they have some kind of else mental health issues, they get support for those issues. So so can they they can stay stay in their own home and then then the support workers visit in their homes or or they meet somewhere else. But the support element is crucial to housing first. And and I've listened to many podcasts from from the United States where they said that housing first doesn't work, but they for forget to mention the services, the support services. So they talk about only the housing only where there is no support element at all. You hear some activists too stop at that point. They'll say, well, we, you know, we worked with them for weeks and they don't want to come inside. Did Finland force people to come inside? Yeah, but that really happens in Finland. And, and I've heard some stories from, from various cities that, you know, people, when they get the home, if they have been, you know, street homeless for a long period of time. So it gets used to, used to the idea that actually I have a home of my own now. So what happened to this one guy is that he was sleeping on a, on a, on a bench on a park and he wouldn't want to sleep to the apartment. So what the support workers did that they moved the bench one meter closer to the apartment building every night. Wow. So at the end of the day, he was already, already, 
at the staircase of, of the building. And at that point, he thought that, hey, maybe it's, it's good time to go, go to see my apartment. So it, you have to think a little bit outside the box. And then again, if people that. don't want to access your services, then you need to take a look what's wrong in our services if people don't want to have access to them. So they actually moved the bench where he was sleeping. One meter yes. closer to the apartment every night until yes. he was right there on the doorstep. Wow. And you have to be patient. It doesn't happen overnight. I guess so. So how did you get the neighborhood, neighborhoods to accept all this housing for homeless people? Uh, well, well, I think the history of Finland helps a little bit because back in the World War II, we lost a lot of land to Russia and we need to house 400,000 people who, who were left wrong side of the border. And we housed those people back then. So I think we have that mentality. DNA in people that, you know, everyone deserves a home of their own. And, and of course, every now and then there, there might be some problems with the neighborhoods. But with the good neighborhood work, you have to work with the neighborhood. You have to explain the situation to them. You have to invite them to these, you know, discussions where, where they can, you know, tell their concerns and fears and, and have a good dialogue with the neighborhood surely helps. How do you keep the costs affordable? Because when we hear some of the, the money that we're spending here on homelessness, it sometimes can come down to like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars per apartment, which seems ridiculous. Yeah, well, well, like I said, the government is, is on, on our side and ending homelessness. And of course, it helps that, you know, uh, there is government organizations who can offer, for example, Y Foundation, really long term, low interest loans so we can build cheap, affordable apartments for people. So that really helps. Do you have any experience turning empty office buildings into housing? There's sort of that movement creeping up now with all the companies going hybrid or remote work that we have a ton of space that could be turned into housing. Is that possible? It surely is possible, and, and we have looked at option from time to time here in Finland as well. But at the moment, in Finland, it is so expensive mm. that we haven't done it. And, and so it's cheaper for us to just build a new new apartment building. But I, I think if we look United States and many other big countries, I, I think that could be one option. Because I think with the housing problem, we need to think outside the box. Because if we just wait for countries to have enough affordable housing, then we have to wait forever. And I think we might have the time to wait, but the homeless people doesn't. And again, you've had success. I mean, that is the key. So yeah. I know I know you've only been to Seattle briefly last April during a housing first conference. What kind of prescription would you write for our city government here in Seattle? Uh, to have the courage to change the system. You cannot just, you know, build more emergency options and temporary accommodation for people. I think what you just said, there are a lot of empty office office spaces there. Why not try to re- uh, renovate some of them into housing options for people who doesn't have anywhere to go? And then again, forget the excuses that people don't want to have, have the support and, and they don't want to move in. Those are just lazy excuses. And if you really work hard with the people and you have the patience, they will want to work with you. You are... Kahila is the Perfect. head of international affairs for the Y Foundation. Yuha, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. In Olympia, the state legislature is getting into the controversial stuff now. We have an attempt at fixing the police pursuit law, which apparently was shot down by a committee chair, and the question of whether cities and counties should be allowed to create their own local gun laws. And to get the update, we go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich, who joins us live. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Dave, my fellow political wonk. Uh... <laughs> And we both enjoy politics. Day 10 of a 105-day session is upon us, and yet 
the pursuit bill, which was a huge issue last year. And police have been complaining, actually almost two years ago, the police have been complaining for about a year and a half about this bill that limits them, they say, in pursuing criminals in a car chase. Um, and it's all based on certain kinds of language. Like As the bill sits right now, a police officer can go after somebody in a car if they have uh, they've committed a violent offense or a sex offense, or they believe that they're uh, driving under the influence. That's reasonable suspicion, and that's a key word in all this. Versus probable cause. A probable cause means that an officer. If, if he gets report of a stolen vehicle like that uh, Subaru over there with license plate XYZ, they have you know evidence to go pull that car over and per, go into a vehicle pursuit. So they've been trying to fix this. And on the Senate side, you have Senator Manco Dingra, who chairs the Senate, uh, basically the committee that oversees all the police legislation. And she came out and already killed one of the proposals, a bipartisan proposal to fix that and add the words reasonable suspicion so police officers can go after uh, cars they believe were involved in a crime. And she says she doesn't like that word, and she thinks the current law is just fine because the intent of the current law is saving lives. Um, I think that language is problematic because it takes us backwards to a time when we had innocent people dying. I think this uh, policy has become so politicized that people are no longer looking at data or best practices. They're having an emotional reaction to it because we don't have any data indicating that there is rise in crime because of this policy. The only data we have is that this policy has saved the lives of innocent individuals. But she did not produce any of that data when she made that statement, and we haven't heard any of that data because she killed the bill before it even got a hearing. So that's on the Senate side. Now, there's a couple other similar bills on the House side, but she's locked on to that reasonable suspicion language that she doesn't want to have, and that's huge for the police officers. Hmm. So... For example, uh, as Chris reported this morning, we had overnight a, uh, a drunk driver chased down. They did a, uh, what, a pit maneuver, Chris? Yeah, I did what? a pit maneuver. The truck went around, but the camper off the back of the truck rolled over and ended up in the median. Still there. Yeah, so still there. Drivers are seeing that this morning. Is that the kind of chase that I, I assume that must be allowed because it happened? Right. Well, if, if the officers believe that there was a... It was involved with someone, an intoxicated driver. That's fair game. They can do that. Okay, that's good. So, what what is the? Can you can you describe the situation that uh, that is a problem here for for officers not being able to chase somebody? So they let's just say they pull somebody over, and and or they you know they they had a, a tail light out, whatever. I'm mm-hmm. just going to make this up, and but they also. You know, they smell marijuana. They, they, uh, they, they, the person may be, uh, maybe a suspicious a suspect in a theft case, but they're not really sure. Mm-hmm. And that person just drives away. They can't go after that person, even though they have reasonable suspicion that they may be involved in a, a case down the road. I see. They can't do that. But if it's a guy with that, a, but if it's a guy with a Chevrolet tattoo on his arm who just tried to abduct a barista, correct. They could chase him, right? Yes, yes. Okay. If they know that he's in that car, you know, they have the right vehicle, and they, he looks like they saw him, and it looks like the same guy. Yes, they have probable cause in that case. Okay, let's go on to the gun issue now because that's a big deal. The the uh, in this state for years we've had a preemption law, which means local jurisdictions cannot pass their own gun laws. Where does that stand? 
Well, this is a huge issue for the big cities, especially Mayor uh, Harrell in Seattle, who's been barking about this for years, even as a um, council member, that cities like Seattle should be able to enact their own gun laws based on what's happening in their city. And like you said, the state controls all that. So when what law is the same in one county is the same in the, in the next county over. And Democratic State Senator David Hackney is sponsoring the bill and explains why the state's blanket approach to gun laws really doesn't work. One size fits all doesn't necessarily work. Local jurisdictions should have the authority to adopt the kind of gun regulations that are appropriate for their community. In South King County, we are facing a surge of gun violence. In fact, we experienced 70% of all the gun violence in King County. It should be appropriate for those communities to make decisions for themselves on the kind of gun regulations that make sense for them. And that's been the argument here, is that what may work in Seattle doesn't necessarily work in Bellingham, and we should not have Bellingham follow Seattle rules and vice versa and things like that. But right away, there's an easy opposition, the same kind of argument about this. Spokane County Sheriff John Knowles, this is a sheriff saying he doesn't like the idea. By repealing this law, it will create criminals out of otherwise law-abiding, tax-paying citizens who are just exercising their constitutional right to keep and bear arms. And that's the NRA argument. And the NRA actually testified and gave a great example of this patchwork of laws if this would be adopted, meaning that a city and county, if they would could have a, a totally different gun law versus the county next door. And she gave the example. This is Abraham Klein of the NRA gave an example of the patchwork laws of a gun owner if they were driving from Vancouver, Washington to Olympia. In that stretch of just 100 miles, you will encounter 14 different jurisdictions with patchwork laws and regulations. In one county, your firearm can be concealed. In the next, it must be locked and unloaded in the trunk during transit. In the next, completely banned. Cross an inevitable and invisible geographical boundary. You're law-abiding on one side and a felon on the other. I, I hear that a lot, but, I mean, speed limits change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. A lot of things change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I thought the the, uh, the complaint... Yeah, you don't of, have a sign on the side of the road. you got to put your gun in the back. In the well, I'll put up right the now. signs then. That's, that's a no-brainer. But, I mean, I remember for years the complaint was, uh, from gun owners, was that the city folk were making gun rules for the country folk. And, and yet, if you try to change that, then nobody likes that either. Because I can certainly see where it's a, a lot different if you have people open carrying, you know, at Seattle Center as opposed to, uh, you know, out at Long Beach. So wh- who's right? <laughs> that's my one. Well, who's well, right? I mean, <laughs> that's why they're going to have all these debates in Olympia and even on talk shows like yours. You know, we're having a debate about this. You know, uh, Senator Hackney represents South King County in South Seattle area where, like he said, huge amounts of crime. So that area may want to enact ability to not carry, you know, I mean, that you can't openly carry a gun in that area because of the high crime rate and things like that. I'm again, I'm making this up, but it's real specific to the area. Um, But again, like you saying, these arguments are not new. Uh, this uh, preemption has been on the books nearly 40 years in the state of Washington, and it actually is one of the leading states in the country to have a preemption law. Other states started adopting what Washington has. But because of the nature of the rise in, in gun crime right now, people want, cha- want to see some change. Kyron News Radio's Matt Markovich. Matt, thank you. You're welcome, Dave. 
your daily dose of kindness now, sponsored by Heritage Homecraft. Yet again, the story of how TikTok can change lives. I had this guy come in, didn't know who he was. And I like to ask my customers, you know, where you're from? What do you do? And he quietly said, I'm a food critic. That's Frank Steele, who owns Frankenson's Pizzeria in Las Vegas. It was a new spot and things were going really slow. Says he was lucky if he made $400 a day in sales. But as you heard, a food critic came in. That would be TikTok food critic Keith Lee, who loved the food. This is one of the best wings I've ever had. This is a 10. That would be Frank's lemon pepper wings. Keith ate more than wings. He ordered a bunch of specialties off the menu and raved about the food. Then... Our phone never stopped ringing. I sold more lemon pepper wings in the last two days than I have in the last four months. I made more garlic knots yesterday than I've ever made. As you can hear, he's getting emotional. It's because this restaurant was a life goal for Frank, and he worried the pizzeria wouldn't last. That's no longer a problem, thanks to the young man on TikTok who decided to take a chance on a new Las Vegas spot. It's just been overwhelming. It's been a blessing. This restaurant has been a dream of mine for 30 years. Keith's food review video has been viewed more than 22 million times now and counting (laughs) frank says it's still setting in and he told ktnv he's working hard to serve customers who've traveled from all over the country to try those now famous lemon pepper wings so tiktok can be a force for good well let's see in the last month i've covered three tiktok stories Uh two of them are of TikTokers who found, uh, you know, octogenarian Walmart workers still trying to pay off their mortgage. And they thought this isn't fair. So they started GoFundMes. And now those two uh, Walmart workers happily retired. Good for them. Seven forty eight Seattle's morning news from the G and Ursula show. Here's G Scott. Did you see the uh, essay in the New York Times headlined "What if diversity trendings are doing more harm than good"? Mm. And it's uh, it's an opinion piece, but it also points out that there have been a number of uh, surveys and studies to try and figure out whether going through uh, required diversity training actually helps diversity, <laughs> and they can't find any evidence that it does. Mm. So, I don't know, Colleen and I, we've been through diversity training. Multiple times. I had my first one like 20 years ago. Anyway, Mm -hmm. have you been through these things? Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, first of all, um, I want to sign something to say that anything that I say right now, I am protected. So, will SMN, Dave, Ross, and Colleen O'Brien, will you guys make sure that anything that I say right now can cannot be held against me? And I, and if if the bosses are listening, listening yeah, right will, now, my, my job is protected. Yeah. Let's Fair? just talk it out because right, every, you know, this out? is a fluid conversation. Yeah. We're figuring it out. Yeah. Right. Um, here's why. Here's why a lot of times diversity training does not work is because, uh, in my opinion. Most of the time, it's only being done to check the box. Ah, to keep the company protected. Right. Mm. You want to know the best diversity training? You ready? You guys ready for this? Yes. Higher diversity. Yeah. <laughs> Working with people who are different from you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's not rocket science. Yeah. If you have an entire management team and there's zero diversity, but yet they want you to take a diversity class. Yeah. I'm sitting in the class like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. But you know, you smile. And you're like, how was the class, G? Oh, it was great. 
You're fantastic. In your experience, does the training bring up the topics and issues that are most important to working in a diverse workforce? Yes. The the topics are legit. The okay. examples are real in all of these things. The problem is going to be the execution. You can go through the role play in the class and go through it and get all done. So, for example, you can shower in the morning. And then once you shower, you, you're done for the day. You go on with your day. That doesn't mean that the next morning you don't have to shower. You feel me? Mm -hmm. You still got to shower. So if you take that DEI class on Monday uh, in the fall of October, guess what? At some point, you're going to probably need to do it again. Or you can hire diversity and then you can really help expedite the, 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 the deal of learning how to be. Now, the best diversity classes that I've ever gotten in my life was when I was in military school. Mm. And what I mean by that, those classes, they weren't classes. They were living with people from different cultures and different backgrounds. Doesn't that put the onus, though, on the person, I'll just in this case say minority, to then teach Right. Aren't companies trying to make it so that it's not on the shoulders of those who might be discriminated against? No, I mean, look, it's it's like, Colleen, it's like you and I. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, over the time we've gotten to know each other. Right. You've taught me some things and, and hopefully maybe I've taught you maybe a, a couple things. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like, hope so. Like, yeah. like people, when you start being around each other, that's when you learn how else another way that you learn. Go go to somebody's dinner table. You you want to get to know somebody from other backgrounds? Go to dinner at their house. Yeah. Go yeah. sit at their table. Go on vacations with them. Go to church with them. I go keep trying to get you two to go to Vegas. You and Dave, Vegas road trip. Let's do it, baby. <laughs> right. So 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 like so, <laughs> so for fun. so so for an example, Dave Ross. What would it take yes. for you to come to have dinner at my house? Just say, Dave, how'd you like to have dinner at my See house? What I'm yeah. You get to learn, oh, not, not, oh, come on over for a barbecue, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And you'll you'll learn that at our barbecues, there's no vegetables. <laughs> the only, <laughs> Don't and, bring your and, kale salad. And wait a minute, Dave. and the only salad we have is uh-huh. potato salad. No okay. raisins. Right. You know, no raisins, Dave. Okay. I'm familiar with potato salad. <laughs> well, no, but, but let me just be very serious about this topic. The best way for diversity is to hire diversity. And when I'm sure that um, whether or not you have a friend or you're a loved one, someone who is uh, another culture background or something like that, probably your greatest lessons weren't in a book. They were around that person and learning. And I got to share with you to this day, probably the most special discussion that I've ever in my life had about race again, goes back to when I was in military school. I remember exactly when it was. It was 1990, right? And at the time, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, I went to school with the uh, with the Minister Farrakhan's youngest son. Mm. When he would go to school there, by the way, uh, when we play basketball games, he went by a different name because we played in Indiana. He had a fake name that he would go with. They wouldn't be like Abnar Farrakhan. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? So they didn't do that then. Anyway, he went by Chris Cole. But uh, we were all having a discussion. We're up late at night, and we're having, and we call it, we're going to have a real conversation about race. Okay. Right? And so people start asking, so some of the white folks that were in there, they were like, so why does your dad hate white people? And I'm like, I mean, it was wow. the real discussion. And, and do you hate white people? And, and, and Abner was explaining, I was like, no, I don't hate white people. I just, I just hate what has happened, the structures of racism. And it was just explaining that. Mm-hmm. And then it was this other guy who broke down and was like, yeah, 
my dad, my dad is a clan member. Uh. I, I mean, it was beautiful. There was tears, crying. There was hugs and love and everything. But you know what that started with? Trust. It started. Yeah. It has to start. Yeah. You had bonded with those individuals mm-hmm. and it opened the door to have those vulnerable conversations, which leads to learning. But you have to have trust first. Yeah. So maybe we should have trust training seminars first. So let's <laughs> so let's go back to what we said initially yeah. and the reason why they don't work. They don't work because the people that are sitting there taking the DEI class don't trust that this is coming from a real place. Mm. They think this is coming from a check the box. Interesting. Mm-hmm. There's no trust. Mm. Good point. Yeah. G. Scott with Ursula at 9 o'clock. Layoffs are coming to two of the region's biggest employers. We'll start with Microsoft. Confirmed by CEO Satya Nadella, 10,000 workers will lose their jobs between now and March. That's about 5% of its workforce. The company cites macroeconomic conditions and changing customer priorities. The memo sent to employees did not give detail on which Microsoft divisions will be affected. According to GeekWire, though, it's the second largest workforce reduction in Microsoft's history. The company cut 18,000 employees back in 2014, several months after Nadella became CEO. And now let's turn to Amazon. We're learning more about its layoffs. The company announced earlier this month it would lay off 18,000 people, the largest in its history. Bloomberg reports these layoffs start today, this round affecting the retail division and human resources. While the cuts represent about 1% of the total workforce for Amazon, which includes hundreds of thousands of hourly warehouse and delivery personnel. They amount to about 6% of Amazon's 350,000 corporate employees around the globe. An update on one of yesterday's top stories. In fact, a story that made headlines across the country. The attempted abduction of a barista at a drive through coffee window. Here's Kyra News Radio's Sam Campbell. It happened around 5 o'clock Monday morning at a drive through coffee hut on Auburn Way North. In surveillance video released by police, we can see a man try to reach for the barista's arm, pull her, and apparently try to use a zip-tie device around her wrist. She escaped and he drove off. But you can see a distinctive tattoo on the man's forearm that appears to read Chevrolet. That footage was amplified by national media outlets reporting yesterday in about 14 hours after police initially released the footage they announced they had arrested a suspect colby crossley with auburn police tells brandy cruz on cairo news radio that police found evidence in the suspect's pickup truck linking him to the crime a lot of people said they recognized him just because of his face a lot of people in the area actually knew him and said they recognized him um, at different areas throughout auburn The company's owner declined interview requests from multiple news agencies, and workers have wanted to remain anonymous for privacy reasons, so I'm not going to name them or the exact business, but I did ask the digital team here to reach out to the company on Instagram, and we received a message back purportedly written by the victim who also wanted to stay anonymous. In it, she says a man ordered a drink, asked for change for a $5 bill, and when she went to hand it to him, he grabbed her. She says it was a random attack, but defends the company's owner, saying that they have already had several security measures in place and there wasn't really anything they could have done to prevent it. She says, quote, he was going to do this to someone. It just happened to be me. The victim writes she's worked there for nine years and this has never happened before. I asked workers at other drive-up coffee shops in the area if they've dealt with something like this in the past. They told me that they haven't, but they've also avoided going out in the dark in Auburn now. Haley Ackervold works at Bigfoot Java. It's gotten more dangerous as time goes on. And in Auburn, it is pretty sketch. You don't want to be alone at night. 
Ackervold tells me she's happy she works during daytime and with other people during her shift, which when I approach the coffee shop where the crime happened, it appears they only have one on the clock at a time. It's a pretty small place. And the uh, it sounds like then tips were what led to this guy's arrest. People who just recognized his face or the tattoo? That is what it appears to be. The police have thanked the community for, quote, overwhelming support. Gotcha. Thank you, Sam. Thanks. It's one of the reasons we're paying more for poultry and eggs at the grocery store. Bird flu. And it's not letting up. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch is here with the latest on that. Heather. Dave, this outbreak of avian flu was first detected overseas and hit the U.S. in February of last year. It has spread with deadly force. That's actually led to the depopulation of over 44 million laying hens. In the country, 44 million birds killed. The Washington State Department of Agriculture's Amber Best tells me avian flu was detected in our state in May and turned up in its first commercial farm here only last month, but it's killed plenty. It's over a million and 20,000 birds total. Just in um, Washington State? Yes. She says after a 2014-2015 outbreak of bird flu, farmers in the ag department learned to take precautions, how to keep people from inadvertently spreading the virus from flock to flock. This time, she says, every case in our state has been linked to wild birds, birds that it can pe- that can appear to be healthy. Though we do see the virus in waterfowl, like ducks and geese, and we do see them die from it. What is really interesting is that they can actually have this virus and be carriers of it without showing any symptoms. The virus is challenging on a number of levels. How long the virus lives in the environment and on surfaces, how quickly it spreads between the flocks and how quickly it kills. The strategy is to quickly detect it and euthanize birds exposed to it to try and stop the spread. We're still working fast and furious to eradicate this virus. But time is not on anyone's side. We are hoping that we can get it eradicated before it can, we call it, reassort and become zoonotic, which means that it would jump from one species to another. Over time, viruses do that. Now, it is true that H1N1 flu originated in swine, and the COVID-19 virus came from an animal, likely bats, but she stresses there is no evidence that this strain of avian flu has infected any humans. And you can't get it from eating eggs or poultry, but it is evidence, Dave, we have to take these viruses very seriously. Thank you, Heather. 848, Mickey Gomez is here. You know, Mickey, one of the considerations that uh, crossed my mind when I decided to move out here all many years ago is that this would be a great place to retire. No. Should I ever decide to do that? Yeah. Uh, but now I, I'm hearing, and I think you are too, more people who decide to retire outside the United States because they can't afford it here. That's right. They can't. Um, to come fl- to comfortably retire today, um, according to Nerd Wallet, and I know this because I used to be in finance, uh, our generation needs about $1.8 million in order to live comfortably for the next 20 years. So if you're 60 to 67 and you're ready to retire, you should have $1.8 million ready to go. Um, no problem. No, yeah. right. No problem at all, right? Just whip that right up. Now, Gen Z, our children, Colleen, I'm thinking about your kids, uh-huh. my kids, they're going to need... $3 million, according to analysts, in order to retire when they're 65, 67. My gosh. So with the cost of inflation, Americans are realizing, you know what? We not we might not have enough money to retire here in America. So the alternative is that they move abroad, where it's apparently more affordable and they can stretch their dollar. 
And according to Yahoo News, um, a lower cost of living, better weather, lower taxes and a higher quality of life are all reasons that about 12 percent of Americans retirees are saying adios and they're getting the heck out of here. So what countries are we talking about? Yeah. So (laughs) we have so many questions. Yes. So the top five countries. So if you have enough to retire off of and you have a budget of about two thousand dollars a month, the top five countries. And I'm really surprised about this um, are New Zealand. The sure. average cost of living there, and this is a good again, average cost of living. We're talking about rent, we're talking about food, um, we're talking about taxes and healthcare. Uh, sixteen sixty nine, but I will tell you that um, a month, New Z- sixteen sixty nine a month, yes. And this country does have stricter citizen laws, citizenship laws. That was my question, is how many of these countries are letting all the retirees in? (laughs) Well, I mean, listen, some of these countries are smaller and they do, you know, they do want Americans who can come in and who can add and add productive, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They just want productive money. money. Exactly. Bring (laughs) money and spend it in these countries. Denmark comes in um, for the second. Uh, Let's see. 1665. Austria. 1467. You guys want to retire in Slovenia? (laughs) Slovenia is one of them. Uh, Japan. If you want to live in Japan, my son is interested in this. You only need a, a, a 1171, wow. according to uh, according to this um, this study that was done. Well, Portugal, uh, you only need yep. nine hundred and seventy seven dollars a month. I was month. getting there. I was Dang. getting there. Czech Republic, a thousand seven, and Portugal, which I will be visiting next year because my best friend and his husband are leaving on March 27th and they have they're going to go like live there forever. They're going to live there. Wow. They wow. he's retiring. He works for uh, our sister station in San Francisco <sighs> and he his last day is the 28th of February, my birthday, and then they're getting the heck out of here. Oh, so their rent, dream. the the money that the the income that they're making on the rental properties will be able to afford their life in Portugal That's right what now. you need wow. if you're going to retire. You need property investments. You need Wall Street investments. You need a retirement mm-hmm. account. You need a pension. You need a... <laughs> it's the three-legged stool, which yeah. most Americans don't have anymore when it comes to their retirement. You need you need your three-legged stool. You need your pension. You need your Social Security. And then you need your investments. And most people don't have that anymore because companies don't offer pensions. And they can live in Portugal for less than 1000 a month. They can live wow. in Portugal for about $977 a month. The interesting thing is that some of these countries do offer public health care systems. However, you have to become a citizen mm. in order to take part in some of their uh, government benefits. And um, you have to be there for at least a year, I believe, before you can apply for citizenship. And you have to have visas to go there, travel there and live there. You have to be very much so on the up and up. Yeah. Hmm. And they have to speak Portuguese, or do they all know English? So most of these countries, they do know English, even though English isn't the first language. But uh, some place like uh, Slovenia, Czech Republic, um, English is a second language there. But most people are taught in Europe English. I grew up in Europe, and um, I had to learn German, but it was a lot easier for me because... They spoke English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, what I was surprised about was that Mexico uh, didn't make the list. Hmm. Really? Because too expensive? A little bit or too expensive. Yeah. Saturated with Americans already? Uh, well, <laughs> if you want to move to some place like Merida, which is my dream city, or Tulum, the average cost of living there will be about $2,500 a month. You need to make wow. about thirty to uh, $35K a year. Hmm. But there you go. That's where retirees so there are, are thinking. There are options. And if you can afford the plane ticket, then the rest is gravy. Yeah, let's, yeah. Mickey, let's not tempt Dave next time you're here, okay? <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Portugal for sure, baby. Yeah. Thank you, Mickey. 
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.